0: Will ask me questions, and even non Christians that know almost nothing about Jesus are a little curious. And then, of course, little children will ask questions like, Do dogs go to heaven when they die? What about my dog or my cat? Or, Did Jesus ever ride a horse? How would you answer that? Well, he rode a donkey on one occasion, but we don't know any more. What did Jesus look like? We only have a few hints in the Bible. This last week, someone in this church asked me, was Jesus ever sick? And I used to think, no, Jesus would never sneeze or cough. But I got to thinking about that. Well, as God, he can't get sick, but he was a man As God, he couldn't die, but as a man, he could die, perhaps in his humble state, he did. Interesting question. I've been asked, did Jesus have brothers and sisters? In other words, did Mary and Joseph have other children after Jesus? And of course, the Catholic Church says, no, 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 perish the thought, but Matthew, Mark, and John all say he had brothers and sisters, Catholic Church says, well, those were cousins or maybe children of Joseph by a previous marriage, or Mary and Joseph adopted them. No, no. These were half brothers and sisters. At least four brothers that are named, and at least two sisters in Jewish custom would be that they would be married, so that would be Uncle Jesus. Think about that. Here's another question Was Jesus ever married? You know, Muslims know as little about Jesus as Christians know about Muhammad. Was Muhammad married? Many, including at least one that was not even an adolescent. Was Jesus ever married? Yes and no. Some years ago, Dan Brown thought he was being original and wrote a book, The The Da Vinci Code, suggesting Jesus was married, had children, and so forth. And actually was building upon another book that had been written earlier, a couple years earlier, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And these two authors said Jesus married, had children, and there's a bloodline throughout history descended from Jesus. That's the Holy Grail. And that they traced it down to a little boy living in South France. No, no. Did you know the Mormons say Jesus was married to many wives? Of course, these others say it was Mary Magdalene. Mormons say it was not only Mary Magdalene, it was Mary and Martha, two sisters. That was forbidden by the law of Moses and many others. About 15 years ago, Dr. Karen King of Harvard Divinity School discovered a very small manuscript written on papyrus, manuscript about that big, about the size of a credit card, written in Coptic, the language of the Egyptians. And it's it's just little broken phrases and one of them says Jesus said my wife. And of course in the blogosphere everybody is saying Jesus was married and the feminists jumped on that and the Mormons and the Catholics had to rebut it and there's controversy until most legitimate scholars said this was a forgery and it was probably copied from some ancient Gnostic writing and so we can dismiss that. Was Jesus ever married to a woman like Mary Magdalene? No. The Gospels would have said that. It's like that thing in Sherlock Holmes, the dog that did not bark when you expect it to bark. If Jesus was married, the Gospels surely would have said so. Any biography would have said so. Not only that, it would have been a mismatch. The Bible says do not be unequally yoked. What woman would have been appropriate for this sinless man that was the son of God? What if they had had children? No, Jesus was not married. And the explanation is he gives it himself, Matthew 19. Paul echoed it in 1 Corinthians 7. That though most men would get married, there are exceptions where certain people would not get married in order to serve God more like the Apostle Paul, many of the prophets, and the Lord Jesus. He was a bachelor. So Jesus was not married in that sense, but in another sense, Jesus was engaged to be married, not to any one woman, but to many men and women, all true Christians constitute what the Bible calls the bride of Christ. And that's the theme of this morning's message. Look at Ephesians 5. The context is husbands, love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. And that's a picture of Jesus and his bride. Jesus loves his bride, Christians submit to him. That's the context. Human marriage is to be patterned after Christ's heavenly marriage. Look down at verse 32. This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his wife as himself, but let the wife respect her husband. It's a great mystery and Ephesians has mentioned previous mysteries. Mystery means it has very deep significance, it is not necessarily seen on the surface. You have to look at it very closely. It's very profound. First Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God became the God-man. Who can fully understand it? It's a great mystery that's only been partly revealed in the same thing about Christ and his bride. One misunderstanding uh, is the Catholic Church says, Well, marriage is a sacrament just like baptism and the Lord's Supper because in the Catholic Latin Bible, it uses the word sacramentum, sacrament. Well, marriage is a holy ordinance, but I wouldn't say it's a sacrament, but let's just set that aside. The great mystery here is that Jesus Christ does have a bride, and he's looking forward to that great wedding day. Now, let's do a survey of what the Bible says about the mystery of the bride of Christ, and this should warm your heart if you are a Christian, you are a bride of Christ. According to the Bible, there's only one God, in contrast to pagan religions that almost universally in Bible days believed there were many gods and goddesses, and often those gods married these goddesses and they had many wives or husbands. For example, in Greece, there'd be Zeus and his wife Hera. Down in Egypt, Osiris and his wife Isis. Or in Canaan, you had Baal and his mother wife, Asherah. But according to the Bible, there is no mother goddess. There's only one God, and he is male. God the Father, male. God the Son, male. The Holy Spirit also male. But Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not marry a goddess because there are no goddesses nor does his wife become a goddess. We are the bride of Christ, but in that heavenly marriage, we still remain human beings. By the way, nor did Jesus marry an angel. And the Bible says angels don't marry. Matthew 22, very clear on that. And also there are indications in scripture that just like God is male, father, son, and spirit, all angels are male. They're always called he, his, him, and they have masculine names like Gabriel and Michael, and since we're talking about marriage, Jesus himself said they don't marry. If they're all male, that would be same-sex marriage, something that God utterly forbids. Both amongst the angels and amongst humans, that would be demonic. It's inspired by the demons. So who is this bride of Christ that the Bible repeatedly mentions? Ephesians 5 says it's the church. Now, that's not a building, it's not a denomination. It's just like earlier Ephesians talked about the body of Christ. He is the head with a body with different members. He has a bride, that's the church, his people, all true Christians. New Christians, old Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, but only true Christians, and not just some special Christians. Catholic Church would say, Yes, there are some special Catholics that are married to Jesus and they call them nuns. Did you know that? They go become apostolate, and then after a period of time they're examined, and they say, Now you can be married to Jesus, and look on the left hand and the right finger of nuns, they will have a wedding ring that's given to them saying you are a bride of Christ. Well, I hope they are if they're true Christians. But it's not just for nuns, it's for all true Christians. And the Bible talks about all Christians together forming the bride of Christ. Now it goes back to the Old Testament. Israel is often pictured as the wife of God, but of course most Israelites were not true Israelites. They were not part of that bride in the spiritual sense. And so we find in Jeremiah and other places where God divorced national Israel but he did not divorce spiritual Israel, the Israel within Israel. And that continues into the New Testament with the remnant that becomes the church. We have an organic spiritual relationship, New Testament to the Old Testament bride. In that sense, Jesus has only one wife, not two Israel in the church, but one people, one wife, one body. In the Bible, in the Old Testament often mentions the Bride of Christ under the figure of Israel being the Bride of God. Let me read some of the verses. Isaiah 54:5. "Your Maker is your husband." Isaiah 62:5. "As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Then there's that delightful book called The Song of Solomon. It's not just a romantic, Story about Solomon and his wife. You wonder which one. He had 300 wives and 600 concubines. But it's a picture of Christ and his church. And even many of the ancient rabbis saw this. They said, blessed be the day when God wrote the Song of Songs. And they said, that is the holiest of holies of the holy scriptures. But we see it's a picture of Christ and his bride. Then you come to the book of Hosea who married an immoral woman named Gomer They had three children and then she deserted him and yet Hosea still loved her and woos her back. And that's a picture of Christ marrying us and we are very imperfect but he doesn't give up on us. He brings us back. The high point is in Hosea 14.4 where he says, I will love them freely. I will heal their backsliding. And that's a picture of Christ in us. Now thinking of both the Old and the New Testament, we find that in Hebrew customs there were three stages involved. And we usually think of two, but they, think, think of, they thought of three. For example, the first one you could call the engagement. Two fathers. And maybe they don't even have children yet. But they make a covenant. Shamul, if you have a girl, And I have a son. We will do a deal and they will one day be married. We exchange goats and we maybe get a rabbi to officiate at this engagement. That's the first step. Spiritually, God did that way back in eternity. God the Father and God the Son made a compact. We call it the covenant of redemption where the Father gave a bride to his son. Notice the word gave. Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 7, talks about a father giving his his daughter as a bride to someone. And in John 17, Jesus thanks the father for those that the father gave to him. So it was a covenant back in eternity. But then the next step is in time, the betrothal. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, I betrothed you as a virgin to Christ. Christ the betrothal, and that's when they agreed to this arrangement. Now again, think Jewish. It wasn't just the two fathers. It wasn't just the son and the girl. There had to be a shadchan. What's that? That's a Hebrew matchmaker. Anybody ever see the great movie or the play you know what I'm talking about. Fiddler on the roof, and here comes the Shad Khan, and there's Rad Tevye. He said, oh, it's about to bankrupt me. I got all these daughters, and I got to pay off the Shad Khan. Jews still do this. Uh, years ago, I had a good friend that was a Jewish Christian rabbi in Brooklyn, and he played the part of the Shad Khan, trying to match people up. Didn't work with me, but he matched some others up. And he says, I'm proud to be a Jewish Christian Shad Khan, a matchmaker that introduces them and brings them together. And today we'd say, well, amongst Gentiles, it's usually some good friend or roommate at college says, I want you to meet somebody, and becomes a matchmaker. Ah, but that's simply the betrothal, not the wedding. The wedding is still a future, for us, you could say we are the fiancé of Jesus. We are the bride-to-be, and nothing can stop it. Now, again, during that betrothal period, the bride and the husband-to-be, they prepare. They send out invitations, just like we do today. The father gives a diary to the girl, and she begins to make her wedding dress, and then she gets her friends to be the bridesmaids, or the maid of honor, or the matron of honor, and the man gets his friends ready to be the ushers at the wedding. So that carries over from the Jewish ceremonies, but yet, one thing is missing during that betrothal period, they are not allowed to have sexual relations until they are man and wife. Something else. You find this twice in the Old Testament: that young man that is pledged to marry her, he has to go to her father and prove that he is worthy. He has to build a house, he has to have a solid job, he has to prove to him, I am willing and able to provide for her and I love her, and I will love her all, uh, only her. He's willing to support her with love. Now we find that in Christ, that Christ paid the bride price to the Father. For the daughter of the father, by way of creation, he paid the price, and that's what we find in Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He bought us at the cross. Now, there are other places where the principles are involved in a spiritual way with Christ and his blood. Genesis 24, lovely story. Abraham had a son named Isaac. But they were living in Canaan with all these pagan Canaanites. And Abraham couldn't find a godly woman amongst them. So he sent his, his servant, Eliezer, back to the old country, back in Babylon, or of the Chaldees. He says, now you go find a true believer back then. Well, I've got some back then. You go find one. So Eliezer was the Khan, So off he goes what does he do? He looks around, he prays, and he finds Rebekah. And then he talks to Laban, the brother of Rebekah, and starts to be the Shad Khan, and says, I'm here on behalf of Yitzhak, that's Isaac, back in Canaan, and let me tell you about him, he's hardworking, he's the son of the covenant, he's very godly, would make a good husband, and unload the camels, and open up the chests, and here are these gifts to be given to Rebekah and oh, he lays it on real thick like a shod con wood and Laban looks at all these jewels and all that. He oh, I've got something for you too, Laban. Here, open another trunk. And boy, they're all impressed. And then this is a way of saying, will you marry Isaac back there? And so Laban says to her, Rebecca, will you go with this man? And she says, yes, I will go. And that sealed the betrothal and then off they go, back on the camels, back to Israel. And she sees Isaac, and then they get married. Wonderful thing. Now, that's also a picture of what God does. He has a Shad Khan. It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just us. You know, when you help lead someone to Christ by telling them the gospel, you're kind of like a Shad Khan, the matchmaker, the go-between. But there's something more. We can try and try to introduce them to Jesus. We try to betroth them, but we can't. There's someone that can. The Holy Spirit. He is the one that, as it were, woos that lost sinner and opens up the chest and shows how great Jesus is and what more could you ever want that you can't find in Jesus. He's everything that you could ever desire. He shows us the beauty and worthiness of Jesus. And he works on our hearts to persuade us to accept him willingly. He brings us to Jesus. He enlightens us. He convicts us. He converts us. And something else, this is a little nuance, in the Old Testament and the New, you remember that um, Eliezer gets out all these jewels and it says there in the text, he gives a certain nose ring to her. Now, that would be like a wedding ring that a girl today would have a certain nose ring. You go to the New Testament in Ephesians 1, says God has given a certain engagement ring to the bride-to-be, and you know what that is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Greek word Arabon, which is often used as a guarantee or as a down payment or of a pledge of betrothal before the wedding. That's the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's proof you are the bride-to-be of the Lord Jesus. Then there are principles found with Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed. Matthew 1 especially says they were betrothed, not yet married. And then Gabriel made the announcement that the baby that would be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary was the Son of God. And then Jesus was miraculously conceived. We mentioned that recently. When was that incarnation? Not when Jesus was born. But when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, when? Scholars almost universally agreed it's when Mary said, let it be done unto me according to the word of God. And at that very moment, Jesus was conceived. But they were still betrothed, not yet married. And then they would be married and then Jesus would be born. So you see the pattern again, betrothal and then marriage. We're the fiancé of Jesus, the bride-to-be. Now, back then and today, the bridegroom has a best man. Uh, I've been a best man more than once, once up in Detroit and once back in New Orleans. The one in New Orleans was rather forgettable because there were several of us, and this was before I was a Christian, and it was, kind of, it was an elopement is what it was. Who's the best man for Jesus? Moses, Abraham. No, according to John 3.29, it was John the Baptist because he had the privilege of introducing Jesus to Israel and to the world. Behold the Lamb of God. This is him of whom I have said I'm not worthy to unlash his, his shoes. John the Baptist is the best man as it were. By the way, there's no mention of a maid or matron of honor Catholic Church and say, well, I guess it's Mary, but we're not really sure about that, so it's not significant. Mark 2 also gives us some clues about the uh, wedding feast of the Lord Jesus. It talks about the friends of the bridegroom, or today we might call them the ushers. There's the best man and usually the best friends of the bridegroom. These are the official witnesses, and when I perform a wedding, I say, now, before you get in the car and rush off to the airport with the tin cans behind the car. We've got to sign the wedding license. You know, once they forgot to do that and somebody had to jump in a car and drive after, hey, stop, 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 you didn't sign it, you're not married until you sign it. But you have to have official witnesses. Who will be the official witnesses of this marriage between Jesus and his bride? Who are the witnesses of the betrothal? I would suggest to you, it's the holy angels, because they're always witnessing what Jesus did, like the Bible says, has to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Here's another step. In a wedding, there's always the exchange of vows. And so the bride says, I promise to love, honor, and obey. We looked at that two weeks ago. When we become Christians, we take a vow to love, honor, and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We submit, just like a wife to her husband. Now, in our wedding vows, we usually include the words, till death do us part. Wonderful thing is, death will never separate us from Jesus. When we die, that doesn't end the betrothal. That leads us to the wedding. We need to see it from God's perspective So instead of saying, till death us do part, we can say, we are now married, and we will live happily ever after into eternity. Someone said that another factor could be deduced from this, that we were once married to someone else, we were once married to Satan, and we divorced him in order to marry the Lord Jesus, perhaps. Matthew 25, 1 to 13, gives us some more insights into this wedding. Slight variation in the typology there. You have ten virgins, five of them are wise, five are unwise, and they're waiting for the groom to come and then to announce he's here, and then the wedding will proceed. But during that betrothal time, the groom is away. And the Hebrew custom was that during that betrothal period, they don't see each other. And he's away in another place building a house, storing up money, getting everything ready. And she doesn't know when the wedding will be. And then he'll announce it and he'll get all of his friends together and say, the wedding day will be today. And so they all come. Someone blows a shofar ram's horn. Here comes the bridegroom. And the bride is waiting and she gathers all of her friends. And they get their rabbi and they get the wedding which lasts seven days, a seven day wedding feast, the wedding feast. This is picturing that Jesus is betrothed to us now and he's gone off into heaven to prepare. Didn't he say, I go to prepare a place for you? Those 12 apostles would have known exactly what he meant. You are the bridegroom going to prepare and one day you will come And we don't know when you will come with your angels and you will take your bride to the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride. Now I want you to see more on this. Turn to Revelation chapter 19 because 19 to 22 all mention this holy wedding that is coming. First start at Revelation 19. Verse seven, now these are the angels and many people up in heaven and they say, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. This is, uh, this is right before the second coming. The marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be clothed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Not only here comes the bride, but here comes the bridegroom it says here, his wife has made herself ready. Like brides generally do, they buy a very famous garment, or they sew their own wedding dress, or maybe one that belonged to their mother. The wedding gown, in verse eight, calls our attention to this. Notice it says, it's been granted to her. It's been given to her by God. How? Two stages. First. The Bible speaks of justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ, which in the book of Isaiah is called the robe of righteousness. That's the wedding gown that is given to us. It's imputed, but here it calls attention to another aspect. Not the imputed robe of righteousness, but the infused robe of righteousness because it says arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is not saying that we contribute to our justification. What this is saying is, at that great wedding, the culmination of sanctification has been completed. We will be holy and blameless, as it says in Ephesians 1.4. We were predestined to this end, And back in Ephesians 5.26 and 27, it says Jesus died in order to present to himself a bride that's pure and holy. It will be completed at the wedding so that we will be justified with the robe of righteousness and will be totally sanctified with the infused righteousness of Christ. Sinless perfection at last, ready to be married to the sinless, holy Lord Jesus Christ. Next, skip down to chapter 21, verse 2. Then I, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is symbolic language. We're the New Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down from heaven for the wedding, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Go back to chapter 19, verse 9. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And then skip lastly to chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. So all those heavenly hosts, the angels and the saints in heaven, and then it culminates in the very last chapter of the Bible, where the bride says, come. Come. Some of you that are married remember that right before the wedding you sent out invitations. Please come. Please RSVP. Please come and share in our joy. God sends out invitations. Jonathan Edwards had an interesting observation. He said sinners are not only invited to be the witnesses at the wedding, they are invited to be the bride at the wedding. He ushers And you see this in some of his parables. He issues an offer of marriage, a proposal of marriage. If you're not yet a Christian, think about it. In this sense, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, proposes spiritual marriage to you. He rules you. He romances you. Have you ever thought the amazement of that? He's God that became a man, a sinless man, of which nobody would ever be worthy. But he stoops to propose marriage because he desires sinners to become his bride. He saves them. He cleanses them. He desires to be united with them in holy matrimony. Now here's a question that may run through your mind. Well, Jesus is one man. How can he have millions of, uh, millions of wives? Is he a polygamist like Solomon or like Muhammad? No, no. More than Solomon that had 300. Jesus has millions. The clue is this. He's not just a man. As a man, it would be wrong, but he's also God. Being God, he is infinite. He has the infinite capacity not in only to adopt thousands and millions of people as children, but to marry many of them as the bride of Christ, just like the mystery of prayer. He can hear each person pray as if that's the only person, but at that very moment, there may be millions of people praying. He has the infinite capacity for each one and for all of them. In the same way, Jesus has one bride, but many brides that are part of that one bride. Bride, because he is God. Now, this isn't polygamy, and it's not polytheism. Polygamy is a man having many wives. Polytheism is saying there are many gods. No, there's only one God, and he has only one bride. It's also not that rare custom called polyandry. What's that? Where a woman has several husbands at the same time, not like that woman at the well in John 4 that had several consecutive husbands, separated by divorce. By the way, polyandry, that's not polyandry. Some of you know Polly, whose maiden name was Polly Antry. She got a giggle out of that when I preached on this once. But Jesus has only one bride and the wife has only one husband. That's Jesus and his bride. And we are part of that bride. The bride includes each Christian and all Christians but only Christians. Back in Ephesians, quoting Genesis, it says that in marriage the two become one. Now this sometimes is misunderstood. When we become the bride of Christ at the great wedding in the future, we do not become a goddess, we do not become an angel, we still remain human, just like in human marriage. A man and a woman marry, and it's only man and a woman, not same sex, They still have their separate identities. He's still a man. She's still a woman. They still have separate names. Just the last name changes for the bride. When we marry the Lord Jesus, we're united to him, but we still have a personal identity. But as I preach at our conference, when we're united with him, we have union followed by communion. That's what husbands and wives need. They are married When they say, I do, they need to develop communion heart to heart. This is where it gets better and better. At the wedding feast of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be finally united, and that begins an eternity of communion with him. What does this mean? There are several purposes of marriage, to have children, a good friend, someone can take care of you when you're sick, and you can take care of that person, Helping each other. But the primary purpose of marriage is what? The mutual enjoyment of love with one another. And you that are married know just what I'm talking about. I envy you. I guess next to salvation, that's one of the greatest gifts God can give to humans, is a loving marriage. And I say, God bless you for that. But it's like that in the spiritual realm. To be united with him, Jesus, the king of lovers. Romans 5 gives us another insight. It says that Jesus is like a second Adam. Now there's a difference. Adam was just a human. Jesus was the son of God. But they were both heads of a race of humanity. But Adam failed. Jesus did not fail. Adam had a wife named Eve. Who's the second Eve? You know what the Catholic Church says? Mary. No, no, no. The second Eve is the bride of Christ, and that's us. By the way, Jesus is a better Adam. He never fell like the first Adam did. Now, as I said, Mormons believe that Jesus had many wives, and they say that Mormon men, when they get to heaven, actually a certain planet out there, they say they get many wives. They say, sorry, women, no, you don't get many husbands. By the way, this resembles Islam that says, those that die in jihad get seven virgins one day. No, no, all that is crass. That's nothing what the Bible says. Nor is there any procreation of children when we get married to Jesus, like in human marriage, because our marriage to Jesus is not so much physical as spiritual. And yet, if you want to use that analogy, you could say that, when we are married to Jesus, there will be the production and reproduction of glory and love and joy. Human marriage is only for this life. Jesus said so, Matthew 22. That's why couples pledge till death us do part. Sorry, husbands and wives, you're only married to your spouse in this life, not in the next. But there's a secret. If you're both Christians, When you get to heaven, you'll no longer be husband and wife, oh, you'll remember that you had been, but you won't be husband and wife, you'll be brother and sister, and together you will be part of the bride of Christ. That's a wonderful future. Now weddings usually are followed by a honeymoon. Where is the honeymoon in all of this? Well, the wedding of Jesus and his bride happens right at the second coming. Followed by the millennium, and I'm persuaded that will be a thousand-year honeymoon on earth, a new paradise, just like Adam and Eve were thrown out of paradise. Now Jesus, the second Adam, brings his wife into paradise restored for a thousand years, and after that, the judgment day, and then eternity, not just on earth, but throughout the whole universe. Let me correct another misunderstanding, a terrible one that says Jesus failed when he came to earth because he did not find a wife and have children. What lunatic would teach that? Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Mooney Cult, the unification church, said Jesus failed. And so they said, he, they, we need a new Messiah who happens to be Sun Myung Moon. Absolutely not. He is not a second Messiah. Jesus did not fail. He succeeded. On the cross, he said, it is finished, which is as if to say, I won. And he did find a bride, the bride of Christ. There's more. This keeps getting better and better. When we become the bride of Christ, he is the king of kings. That makes us his queen says in the book of Revelation, we get to sit on the throne with him. That's a a right reserved only for a king and a queen. We become the queen of heaven, as it were, not equal to the king, but his bride. Catholic Church says, no, Mary is the queen of heaven. No, except that she is part of the bride of Christ. And it's not the pagan idea that there's a mother goddess, this is warned about in Jeremiah, called her the queen of heaven, like Isis or Asherah, but we do sit on the throne with King Jesus, and it's as if the angels would refer to us as her royal majesty. You want some more? Psalm 45 says the king will desire her beauty, and this is a type of not only God and Israel, but Christ and his church. It says that in Isaiah, uh, Psalm 45 and 11 and 13, that this, that this king is so much enraptured with the love of his bride. It says, You have stolen my heart away. I desire your beauty. How can we say that about us? We're not beautiful. We're sinners. But remember, he saves us, sanctifies us, to present us to him, so that at that great wedding we are pure and holy. But what it says there, it says the king will desire her beauty. Now, during a betrothal, you would have been married remember your engagement period, and you looked forward to it. Now, some people get second thoughts. Some of you men remember that, that strange feeling in your heart. Am I going to go through this? And unfortunately, some people don't. I knew a man that on the way to the church, changed his mind and turned around and left his fiancée at the altar. Jesus won't do that. But my point is, according to Psalm 45, we look forward to this, just like a bride looks forward to her wedding day. Has it ever occurred to you how much the Lord Jesus looks forward to his wedding day to you? He yearns for that because he loves you and he looks forward to the... Consummation of that love. Do you long for that great wedding day? And it follows death. This gives a completely different outlook on death. When we die, we go to be with our beloved Jesus. Let me tell you briefly two stories about two Christian women that realized this. About 1800 years ago, the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. Throwing them to the lions. Burning them in oil. Burning them at the stake. And they had some Christians rounded up. And they brought one of them out. A Christian woman. And they said, we're going to burn you at the stake. We're going to tie chains around you. Unless you deny this Jesus. And she said, how can I possibly deny him? He is my heavenly husband. He died for me. And she said... Can I make one last request? And they said, Roman law allows one last request. What is it? Would you take me out and tie me to the stake in my wedding dress? And they did. Then about 150 years ago, another woman saw the beauty of this. I forgot her name and exactly where it was, but... As she grew up, she wanted to get married as a little girl. She wanted to grow up and get married and have children. And then as a teenager and as a young lady, she began to see all of her girlfriends getting engaged, getting married, but not her. And then into her 30s, 40s, 50. But all that time she had made a wedding dress and kept it hanging in the closet, waiting maybe one day she'll be married. And then she fell very ill. Then the doctor came and saw to her and left. And so the woman now at age 50, not married, called in her father and said, Papa, I've got great news. What is it? I'm finally going to be married. Oh no, my precious one, don't say that, you're delirious. No, daddy, don't you see? The doctor said, I have a fatal condition, I will die. I'm going to be married at last to Jesus. May I ask one favor, Daddy? What is it? Would you bury me in my wedding dress? Because I'm going to be married to Jesus. And she was. Every Christian goes through the portal of death on the way to the wedding feast. That makes us long for death when we see what's on the other side if you look with eyes of your heart you'll see it's not just grave with dirt you'll see the smiling face of Jesus waiting for you and he'll be the first one to welcome you and say let's go and get married right now the wedding of Jesus and his bride are you part of the bride of Christ if so rejoice and look forward to it. If you're not yet engaged to Jesus, please accept his marriage proposal. Think that you could never want anybody better than Jesus. He would love you far more than any mere human, even more than your parents. What would stop you from refusing his marriage proposal? Be betrothed to him now, and then you'll be married to him in heaven one day. Now that's what we've learned from Ephesians 5 about this wedding of the bride to Jesus from her perspective. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at it from the perspective of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you that in all eternity you engaged us to the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you brought us to him to be betrothed, and one day he will come and take us to be with him, either through the grave or through the sky. We've got that wonderful day to be married to him. Thank you for this unimaginably wonderful privilege to be the bride of of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.